Welcome to the PSA Better Intelligence Podcast. I'm Michael Olver, CEO of Pacific Strategies and Assessments. Today I'm speaking with Charles DeRoss. He's a partner at Morrison Forrester and a former Department of Justice attorney. Chuck spent seven years with the Department of Justice's FCPA Enforcement Unit. In addition to being one of the nicest people we've ever had on the pod, he also is hands down the most knowledgeable person I think I'm aware of when it comes to matters relating to the FCPA, investigations, enforcement, and government-facing investigations. The Washington Post even famously labeled him as Mr. FCPA. We're also joined by Katayuni Asani, who is helping me host the episode and is applying her years of in-house experience to make sure the in-house interests are represented in our questions in the interview. Being able to talk to Charles is a great opportunity to get an inside view on how the DOJ and SEC handle FCPA matters. And if you work in compliance and listen to one Better Intelligence podcast this year, you'll want it to be this one. Katayuni and I take advantage of this opportunity to ask him about enforcement trends, how to handle internal and government-facing investigations, and how to set priorities in limiting FCPA risks. Well, Charles, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I'm currently a partner at a law firm called Morrison and Forrester. I'm based in DC. I co-chair our white collar investigations practice as well as our FCPA and global anti-corruption practice. I've been there for about seven years. Uh, before that, I was at the Department of Justice for 12 years, five years as a prosecutor in Miami, a federal prosecutor in Miami. It is a target-rich environment in Miami. Uh, I did everything from guns and drugs and bank robberies, wiretaps. I mean, you you name it, lots of financial fraud and, and corruption there as well. And after five years, I then moved uh, to Washington, D.C. And I was in Washington, D.C. for about seven years in what's known as the fraud section, uh, which has a number of different units. Uh, there's a healthcare fraud unit. There's a market integrity and major frauds uh, unit. And then there's the FCPA unit the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act unit. And I was uh, basically did almost exclusively FCPA cases for those seven years. And I ran the unit the last four years that I was there. Well, thank you very much for joining. Best place to start would be in, in what ways do you assist uh, clients with the FCPA? So we, I think, are much like many other firms that are in this space in terms of uh, we help clients kind of soup to nuts, everything from either establishing a uh, compliance program to avoid violations of the FCPA uh, to refining existing programs. Sometimes you know, companies build on or bolt on lots of different compliance components, and then they're looking to sort of right-size it and make it fit for purpose. So we do those kinds of things. We help companies in the deal and transactional context. So sometimes uh, in terms of um, FCPA due diligence, uh, obviously there's been a number of enforcement actions in which you know one company buys another and either they buy a problem or they don't catch an ongoing problem, which then becomes uh, their own problem. Uh, and so we assist including where we get brought in just as subject matter experts. And so so that's you know among the things that we do on, on that front. We also then deal with individual sort of you know, questions that come up. So sometimes people have specific questions about maybe a, a one-off issue, something that's a bit unique. Uh, there's not you know a lot of case law in the FCPA. And so good companies faced with complicated fact patterns sometimes have specific uh, questions. So we provide some counseling uh, on that front. And then when it comes to uh, internal investigations, we, uh, we do both internal investigations and then what I would refer to as government-facing investigations, where where there's either one, two, or more agencies uh, looking at a particular matter, and we engage with the government on that front. And then I would say the, the last component is I was appointed uh, by DOJ to be a monitor for a company called Odebrecht, 
and uh, and it was at, at least at the time one of one of the biggest, if not the biggest, enforcement actions, FCPA enforcement actions in history. And uh, and so I did that for about three and a half years uh, as well. I- Thank you. In terms of uh, enforcement trends, I mean, we've seen oil and gas, telecom, banks. Is there a trend with this externally? Can you, you know, is it possible to read into a trend? Are there following targeting by industry? Um, is there likely to be a trend in terms of, of outcome by industry? You know, it's kind of funny. You know, everybody uh, asks about trends, and and I think there's it's rare that you can sort of point to a trend. Uh, I wouldn't really call it a trend so much as sort of the government sort of following evidence where it leads it. Uh, and so let me so let me unpack that just for a second. So I don't think that the government picks as a general matter a particular industry and says let's go after that industry, with mm-hmm. some exceptions. I mean, I think the SEC, as opposed to DOJ, uh, because they're a regulator, and this is an important distinction, because they're a regulator, they can look at certain areas and say, I want to make an inquiry into this particular industry. Mm-hmm. And you saw that, for example, with um, you know, financial institutions and sovereign wealth funds a number of years ago. So there are those kinds of industry-wide, uh, I guess you would call it sort of inquiries, but that tends to be the SEC. Hmm. Uh, they're a regulator and they can just, they look into things and that's their job. DOJ, because it's, you know, it's looking into sort of criminal aspects needs predication. They hmm. don't just say, you know, I'm just curious about, you know, kind of fill in the blank. Let's send out some letters on hmm. sort of, you know, criminal division letterhead that say, I'd, I'd like to know more about kind of fill in the blank industry and just see what they have to say to me. They, they, they need to have a, a predication that there's criminal activity afoot that they're looking into, as opposed to just pure curiosity. I I think there's an important distinction between SEC doing sort of industry-wide things, which I think is part of their J-O-B, and then DOJ, which uh, examines specific conduct. And I don't think it's industry-wide, and they will be looking at a particular country. Now, the distinction, sometimes it may be hard to see from the outside, Hmm. uh, is that the DOJ investigation may look like an industry-wide investigation, uh, because once they get in the room with somebody, they'll often ask, well, wh- who else is doing it? Mm. Uh, because you know, misery yeah. loves company, and that's just as much true for corporations as individuals. And so once they're investigating an oil and gas services company in a particular country, you know, often that company will say, well, we're not the only ones doing it. And they will say, well, that's great. Who else is? And then mm. they, they provide a list of names, and then they sort of go from there. And so it might look like from from the outside, oh, this is a investigation into oil and gas services companies in West Africa, but it's actually people providing individual information about a particular company yeah. uh, operations in a particular country, saying, oh, well, we now know that. Or, for example, medical devices in in Greece, which was sort of a number of years ago, and suddenly, you know, people are uh, pointing like, I'm not the only one doing this, go look at so and so. And so it looks like an industry wide investigation, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's actually just uh, sort of people sort of building on evidence in, in particular um, uh, places. And so, so those are the distinctions that I there's industry wide, and I think that's SEC. There are sort of follow the evidence where it leads you, which both is DOJ and SEC, but it may look like it's an industry-wide investigation, but it's not. And so the last point I will make is, at least in the seven years that I was at DOJ, nobody sat around a table and said, hey, I think this year we should go after, you know, and just kind of fill in the blank. Like, you know, I think, you know, uh, people that make 
rubber products uh, are going to be on on tap for this year or, you know, shipping this year is what I'm sort of most interested in. Or, you know, I think tech should be like 2021 is going to be the year of tech. It's really not that way. And what actually happens is it's very opportunistic. And, and I said that once publicly and someone's like, oh, it's a criticism. And uh, and it wasn't a criticism of, of what the, the government does. They are opportunistic. They're supposed to be, which is you know, I when I was running the FCPA unit, I read the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal every day. Yeah. And there was a case that started because I was reading the Wall Street Journal and it was talking about uh, conduct that looked like it was a tax related case in Germany having to do with Russia. And I thought to myself, well, that seems weird. Hmm. Uh, and as I sort of looked at the, the matter and sort of dug into it. You know, we then ultimately, you know, uh, opened up an investigation and that investigation led to a significant resolution a number of years later. But so the media uh, definitely generates many leads uh, for the government. You know, uh, U.S. embassies can generate leads for the U.S. government. Uh, Individuals can, you know, make reports uh, either through the whistleblower program for Dodd-Frank or they can send uh, emails directly to DOJ. Uh, The FBI has their own leads. Uh, people will look at, and there are, for example, uh, organizations that will look uh, at international f- uh, wire transfers mm. uh, for suspicious activity. Uh, foreign counterparts will pick up the phone and call the government, uh, you know, DOJ and SEC to say, hey, we've seen this. What are you seeing? So there's lots of different ways to exchange information that lead to opening up matters that aren't sort of targeting a particular industry or a particular geography, mm. because I think pretty dangerous. I think if you are saying, you know what, I'm just going to target X country this year. Yeah. Um, that has sort of geopolitical impacts as well. And I think for the legitimacy of the enforcement that SEC and DOJ engage in, it's important to not say we're just going to pick on X country, uh, which is why I thought sort of the China initiative announced uh, during the Trump administration was risky to the legitimacy of DOJ and SEC's enforcement program because it makes it look like you are sort of weaponizing the FCPA for potentially political purposes or diplomatic purposes. So I don't think that, you know, there's going to be a trend that that everyone's going to be sort of looking at. Um, And I think that's because what I think was maybe the case 10 or 15 years ago in which if you were in a particular industry, you could feel like, well, I'm either high risk or I'm safe. I actually think that if you look at industries now, you know, nobody is uh, immune from enforcement. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, if you just think about it, yes, some are obvious, right? Um, telecom, uh, you know, uh, de- <clears throat> defense industry, extractive industry. These are industries that often deal directly with the government on large scale projects, um, you know. And, really high uh, risk. Yeah. And in, in some in some geographies that aren't necessarily uh, well known for democracy and transparency. And so they're high risk. But, you know, I think if you were a tech company um, 15 years ago, you would have felt like, well, the FCPA is really not my area of risk. Mm-hmm. But you think about it. Um, you know, many tech companies sell their products and services to governments and state-owned entities that very much uh, pose risk uh, for those uh, industries. And, you know, people think of tech and they don't think, well, they're selling to the government, but they are. Um, And even those that aren't selling to the government, and this is sort of the last point that I would say that I think, you know, really exposes uh, uh, various companies and industries to risk is the operational risk. So, you know, I think if you were thinking, well, I don't sell to the government, and therefore, I don't have FCPA risk. 
well, but do you operate in a foreign country? And as a process of the, in, in sort of a, as a necessary corollary to operating in a country, do you interact with the government? And mm-hmm. the answer is often yes. Mm-hmm. And and so, for example, you know, uh, you know, if, if you're in retail sales in Mexico, you may think, well, I don't face a whole lot of FCPA risk. But if you know the issues, or at least the allegations, are that you want to build your stores in certain locations, and in order to sort of you know speed up that process you're engaged in, in corruption with local boards and zoning boards, suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, that as long as it's tied into obtaining or retaining business, so you're trying to scale more quickly than your competitors, and by making certain payments, you're able to do that, uh, at least allegedly, that's the, you know, that's where suddenly you're not selling to the government, but there's operational risk. Are you moving your products back and forth across um, you know, different uh, borders? Are you you know, are you building something there? Do you need, for example, a tax break uh, on your new facility? Are you getting uh, permission or trying to get permission to build, you know, an addition onto your campus uh, in a foreign mm-hmm. country? Like all of these kinds of operational components of what you do uh, absolutely matters. And it's, you know, including, by the way, trying to avoid, you know, fines or violations uh, in which, you know, you have inspectors that are coming around and, and so my, my point is that for yeah. those co- companies that just like may even say, look, not only, you know, am I not in one of these high risk industries, but I also don't sell to the government. I think I'm fine. I actually think, you know, you're a bit myopic if you're thinking that way. I think 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I think you probably could get away with that. I think today you can see the scope and the, and the scale. And as I was going to say, just opportunistically, the government's reading emails or hearing from people. There's some monetary incentives, all those things. So there aren't trends in the sense of, I think the government's sort of targeting a particular industry or ge- a geography. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the trend is, is that everybody is now kind of within the, the, um, the crosshairs of the government. And, you know, as long as you're interacting with the government and there's a, a risk of corruption, uh, you need to be pretty vigilant about mm-hmm. how you go about your business. Uh, one one question, just kind of a follow up in terms of, um, I mean, you said like they don't target or at least the DOJ doesn't target certain industries. So when you see like one bank, then another bank, then another bank or telecom or oil and gas companies, is also some of it self-disclosure. Maybe we'll get into kind of the process of self-disclosure later. But I know when I was in-house, anytime an FCPA case came out, you'd read it and you'd say, oh my God, you know, what are, are we doing the same thing and are we covered? So I just wonder, do from those cases, do other companies start looking at their, you know, their program and, and doing kind of an assessment on kind of raising their hands and say, oops, we've done this. Right. Same. Well, so that's a fantastic question. And I sort of was, was uh, uh, being judicious and not talking about voluntary disclosure because but, because I wanted to give people a sense of all of the kinds of ways that the government may hear about matters or ultimately choose to pursue them without having anything to do with voluntary disclosure. Um, and so if you pivot to voluntary disclosure, that kind of uh, supercharges you know, sort of what's going on here, which is in addition to all the other things I was just discussing, there are companies that are making... Um, you know, informed decisions about whether or not whatever they're either reading about in other enforcement actions make them think that they've got their own exposure or uh, they are just proactively through their own monitoring, you know, prevention and detection efforts. You know, they, they come across something and now they're faced with the difficult mm-hmm. decision about whether to, to come forward or not. And one of the things we tell clients all the time because of what we've seen in terms of 
uh, misery loves company and, and the government sort of following the evidence where it leads it, is that companies should absolutely do what you were describing, which is you should read enforcement actions or not even just enforcement actions. If there's something in the media that suggests that the government is mm. investigating X company in X country uh, or Y country, um, you should ask yourself, are, are we in the same industry as X company? Uh, and do we operate in Y country? And do we potentially use some of the same third parties that that company uses in that country? Because if so, you know, there may very well be that company saying, hey, you should go look at mm. fill in the blank. And so it's important for, for companies, if they're going to be proactive, uh, to read the information that comes out and say, hey, do we have the same risk? Do we have the same exposure? What are we doing to make sure that how are we so certain that we don't have the same pro- problem as mm. our competitor does? Um, and so that's certainly something that the company should be doing. Well, it's so funny you say that because you do see this a lot of like, well, this is everyone else's business model or everyone uses this third party. Like, why do we need to do due diligence on such and such? Because, you know, this American company has been using them for 20 years, et cetera. And there's just kind of those pitfalls of following your peers because they're like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's been tested somewhere else. Then you find out you're all in trouble. Yeah, (laughs) it's a great point. I, I agree with that. Although I will say, I will say, you know, th- there is also some comfort, you know, if, if you're like it, with the crowd, right? So, I mean, if everyone's been using the same third party for X uh, for 20 years, you know, like it, it, it can give you additional comfort. It should not, to your point, it should not mean mm-hmm. you're not going to do any diligence on that person. But, you exactly. know, if if, uh, if everybody uses, you know, a company X for, the, for some particular service and you've chosen to pick company Y, which nobody's used, like I would be, you know, I would be doing it diligence to make sure that that's a smart choice. Um, one of the things that I wanted to, to ask, can you run people through just a very, what a investigation looks like from beginning to end within the DOJ? So like you, you get a bit of information and then what, are there stages and maybe keep it at a very high level, obviously for, for good reasons. Are there stages people can be better informed? Well, so the way that matters are opened at DOJ is a little bit unique when it comes to FCPA. Putting FCPA aside just for a second for sort of comparison purposes, most matters come to prosecutors from law enforcement agencies. And that's typically how it happens, right? I mean, DEA, you know, is investigating drug traffickers and they bring a matter to the U.S. Attorney's Office and they say... Can you, you know, open this investigation and we now want to pursue, you know, uh, a case. And that's a proactive investigation. So maybe they're uh, grand jury subpoenas, maybe they're search warrants, maybe they're wiretaps. And but it, it originally starts with uh, the law enforcement agency, mm-hmm. that can be DEA or ATF or whoever it may be. Sometimes they are not proactive ongoing investigations. Sometimes they just arrest somebody. Right. And like when I was in Miami, you get a phone call. And they're like. I've got these two guys and they're sitting there in handcuffs. And then you say, okay, what did they do? And then you kind of, you know, work through, it was a drug transaction or involved a firearm or a bank robbery or, or whatever it may be. Hmm. And so the, the, the process itself is essentially the law enforcement agencies beginning and opening the investigation and then going to the prosecutors second. That's different often in the FCPA space in which, for example, uh, the voluntary disclosures that may be happening aren't going to FBI or IRS uh, criminal investigations, uh, IRSCI, uh, or, or others. And by the way, I always used to love working with the IRS 
when I was at the DOJ because they followed the money. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, some of the right. federal agents, you know, always want to put the habeas gravis on somebody. They wanted to go arrest someone. And you're like, that's not this kind of case. Like you, you, we need to be looking at documents yeah. and bank records and spreading accounts and, and things of that nature. And so often the IRS winds up in these cases. And so if you see the press release, you see IRS, you think, why are they involved? Because they follow the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes, by the way, a tax case, you know, or an FBAR violation, sort of failing to disclose in your tax forms that you have a foreign bank account, like these are the low hanging fruit uh, mm-hmm. of, of criminal enforcement. And it's a it's a it's a way to actually uh, bring a charge against somebody and get them to cooperate. It's l- less challenging than the seven different I- independent elements of an FCPA charge, for example, to try to establish. Uh, sometimes money laundering is uh, easier to establish than than FCPA violations. So. Mm-hmm. In any event, uh, the agencies you know normally bring the cases to the government, uh, to, to DOJ, for the prosecutors to then open up and ultimately prosecute, charge and, and prosecute. Whereas with FCPA, the voluntary disclosures go to DOJ first hmm. uh, and SEC, but you know we're talking about DOJ here, uh, and they'll they'll come to DOJ or DOJ may like I was saying I read something in the paper or uh, we'll get a phone call from a foreign counterpart, and so. Often, the, the way cases are opened is that DOJ goes to FBI or IRS or both or their other agencies, Postal, for example, um, uh, and some of these other agencies, uh, Homeland Security Investigations at DHS, and they say, will you open this matter? Uh, and so it's actually the opposite direction. Now, it doesn't mean that FBI and, and HSI and other agencies don't come to DOJ with their own investigations that they've come across. But my point is that it's a more of a mixed bag in terms of how that happens. Yeah. Um, the leadership of the unit, uh, particularly on the voluntary disclosures, they will do the intake. Uh, they'll hear about the matter first, mm-hmm. in part because they need to make a decision about whether to assign a prosecutor to it. Uh, not all voluntary disclosures are created equal. Mm-hmm. Um, some voluntary disclosures yeah. are, we've gotten an allegation, we're looking into it, and we'll get back to you. And that may happen in a circumstance in which there's a whistleblower letter that's come in. With these with these matters uh, that come in, they may or may not seem legitimate. And I think that it's important for the leadership of those units at DOJ and SEC to say, to triage that and make a decision about, are we going to sort of assign people um, to this matter right away, or am I going to wait and see? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some of those cases will, I think they'll, they'll decide whether to you know, add those resources later, because you can imagine, right, there's a, a case that involves, you know, I believe that $100 million in bribes have been paid to the following three heads of state involving, you know, uh, this, you know, very significant company, and I've got some proof. Well, that's a very different case than, mm-hmm. you know, there's no way that company X could have won this matter legitimately. And you're like, all right, like, you know, that that's got very little specificity, uh, a lot of speculation. And, and so I, they need to triage and make some decisions about you know, what they're going to do and what kind of resources they're going to assign. Once mm-hmm. the matter is ultimately opened, they will uh, get law enforcement uh, working with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's FBI or, or another agency or a combination. Um, and then, you know, that those matters, as I was saying earlier, can take a long time. I mean, even with the best of uh, resources, uh, if you're trying to collect information from abroad, mm-hmm. there's a very formal process for doing that. Uh, it's called a MLAT, a Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty Request. And those MLATs take a long time to process because you know, it's a formal process under a bilateral treaty in which 
you know, one country agrees that they will gather evidence for another country. And it's a mutual agreement, right? It's a bilateral agreement. And it could take two years to gather all of that information. So once the matter's opened, it can take years to do it because just trying to gather the bank records, you are reliant on others that are yeah. outside of your control and that yeah. are not, you know, and then ultimately there is a point and there's no science to it. It's more art that the government feels as though they have investigated this matter themselves independently, as well as getting information from the company. That may be documents. It may be access to witnesses. It may be the company's own sort of investigation findings and the, and the like. It could be, you know, uh, for example, retaining third-party investigative firms uh, by, the, by the company to go and uh, do some gumshoe detective work or open source uh, work, or going to gather records or the like, and helping sort of put together the investigation, that can be very helpful uh, in third countries. Uh, and then you know, providing all that information back to DOJ. And there's ultimately a decision that has to be made by DOJ, which is, should we decline the matter because we don't think there's enough evidence? Uh, if they say no, we think there's enough evidence of wrongdoing, they still have to make a decision about you know, is there uh, is there a statute of limitations problem? Is there a jurisdictional reach issue? Like, is there actually a nexus to the U.S.? There are lots of sort of complicated decisions they have to make. And then, of course, one of the decisions they have to also make is under sort of the corporate enforcement policy, you know, what would the right outcome be? Uh, because certainly under the corporate enforcement policy, if you've made the decision to voluntarily disclose, mm -hmm. so if this matter came to DOJ because the company went to them first, uh, there is the presumption of a declination. Uh, now, maybe a declination with disgorgement, but there's a presumption of a declination. Uh, and then there, there are other components to it, which is even if there's not a declination, what's the monetary penalty going to be? Is there going to be a monitor? What's the form of the resolution? There are lots of different negotiations. And when those negotiations, w when it switches from investigation to resolution, there, you know, there's first of all, there's no ta set time period for that. And it's also kind of, to some degree, a conversation or a dialogue between the government and the company's lawyers, the external lawyers to say, when are we at the spot where they feel comfortable that they know enough of the facts, they've made the facts stand still, they kind of ring, ring fenced what happened, they feel like they have an understanding of it. So mm -hmm. now they can talk about how to how to resolve it. And so that's kind of the, the life story of that. Then, then, of course, there's the actual resolution. And then depending on what the resolution looks like, um, there are often, if not almost always, some sort of ongoing reporting obligations concerning compliance, mm -hmm. uh, not a monitor. I think that would be incredibly useful for everyone out there who tries to guess from the outside how things actually work in order to, to better understand the process. So thank you very much for that. In terms of, you know, would you mind if we briefly flip that a little bit and, and talk about, um, so from the, the internal side, now you support clients in facing these problems and, and trying to trying to overcome the you know issues they may have or they may think they have. What does that process look internally? Before you get there, like what, what is that life cycle from identify, investigate, disclose? How does that work within your 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 clients? Well, to some degree it depends on the client, but mm -hmm. um, and and sort of what exactly it is that you're looking at. I will say that in many instances it's very difficult to tell at the very outset how big a problem may be. Mm -hmm. uh, or is it sort of the tip of the iceberg? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's actually something much more yeah. substantial going on, uh, or is it actually quite limited? Uh, and you need to make some, I think, important judgment calls. I think that the first call you need to understand is who's going to look at the, the issue. Yep. And that's governance uh, matter, which is you know, who, who are implicated or potentially implicated in this matter. Uh, is this something that the general counsel can lead? 
uh, you know, in terms of an investigation or a deputy general counsel or someone working, you know, delegated that authority? Or is it, does it have the potential implication where the board is impacted in some way? Uh, and in those circumstances, or I, I would say like, not just the board, the C-suite. So if it's somebody sort of fairly high up in the company, uh, you then may need either the board to be in charge of the investigation or if it, somebody in the board may be implicated, you then have to have a special committee of the board. Um, mm-hmm. These initial discussions and decisions are incredibly important. You know, I think most matters, you know, the vast majority of them don't include some sort of a special committee of the board or the board being in charge of it um, because most of them don't involve C-suite activity or board members. Um, but it's important that if that is the circumstance that you find yourself in, you need to make the right calls at the very beginning. And the reason why you do, not only for internal corporate good governance, but if at the end of the day you end up going to DOJ and SEC and you're in front of them, whether that's voluntary or somebody came knocking on your door and you were trying to tell them that your investigation was credible and independent and whatever the findings were, good, bad, or otherwise, are reliable uh, and that the government should, you know, take them at face value, you know, it matters whether it was truly independent. Uh, And you've certainly seen examples Mm -hmm. of that in history in which, you know, uh, the general counsel of a subsidiary was put in charge of an investigation about his own conduct. Well, that's, you know, that like Mm -hmm. DOJ and SEC are not going to be convinced that that the conclusions of the general counsel in grading his own homework, you know, uh, was sort of an effective way of conducting an independent, credible uh, investigation. So the first thing I would say is who's going to run it? Uh, what's the structure going to look like and making sure that you sort of have figured that out and that it is both credible and independent. And by the way, I will say it's mm-hmm. it's as important as ever when it turns out that the findings are that there was nothing wrong that happened because it, uh, for somebody to believe that, that your conclusion is not just sort of a confirmation bias, uh, you need to be able to show mm-hmm. that, you know, people weren't able to influence uh, those outcomes. It, it's it's difficult sometimes when you sort of talk to people you know, because it's not necessarily intuitive, right? Uh, if someone says, well, this happened mm-hmm. in my, you know, this is about me and someone's accusing me of something. I'm going to get to the bottom of this or something. And you're like, no, no, no. That's exactly why you should not be in charge of this. Like you want to not have anything to do with it so that when we're done, right. you, know, you can say, you know, I had nothing to do with this investigation. I was walled off from it. And the conclusions that exonerate me have nothing to do with, you know, me influencing that ultimate decision. So, so that's the first part. Figure out who's in charge. Uh, make sure that the governance makes sense and that uh, it's independent and credible. Then I think you need to figure out sort of ring, ring fencing what you think the issue is. And I will just say, secure the data. When I was at DOJ, I saw the best of efforts and intentions go wrong constantly, which is the instinct of many in-house counsel is to send out a hold notice. I think that's often kind of a hangover from civil litigation mm-hmm. in which you just sort of send out the the hold notice and then you know you gather up the data for whatever civil litigation you have and, and sort of go from there. The problem is that you know, at least my experience was that a hold notice was essentially a license to delete stuff, right? So like people get like, oh, there's like some investigation into potential corrupt activity in X country. And I've now just notified everybody that we're looking into it. You know, people delete stuff. It's just human nature. People have stuff on their computers that they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. They have nothing to do with corruption or illegal activity. 
I mean, you can just imagine the parade of horribles about what people have on their computers that they shouldn't. And so people suddenly start deleting. And so you'd see hold notice goes out, deletion activity begins. Yeah. And almost like it's not a hold notice, it's a deletion notice. And so what we tell people is, so you know, figure out who's going to be in charge and then lock down the data. And so how do you do that? You put a silent hold. I mean, it depends on how uh, sophisticated the company is and their right programs and, and uh, practices, but make sure that you put a silent hold on the server data. And then often, you know, you call people into a conference room and you get them to give up their comp- their devices, their computer, uh, their mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Now you get in data privacy. We don't have time for that. Yeah. But you got to make sure you're doing that right. But you secure all that and then you hand in the hold notice. So I've taken all your stuff and now you get the hold notice. You don't get the hold notice first. Um, and that, and by the way, I'm pretty confident that that's what DOJ and SEC prefer uh, okay. based on all my conversation with them, which is get the data, lock it down, and then give the hold notice. I, and that's what I would do. I would cast the net wide. Mm-hmm the whole on, on the custodians the people whose data you want to grab because you want to make sure you're you're locking it down and you're securing it it doesn't mean that just because you grabbed it all you need to review it all mm-hmm. uh, you can prioritize custodians you you're going to want to come up with various search terms your doj and sec uh, will share uh, with you generic search terms that they've used in the past they don't all apply and they don't all make sense in a given um, you know in a given matter but they've kind of collected them over time so for example like you know, corruption, you think, well, that's a good search term, right? It's actually generally it's not because it pops up. In Commission, like, probably a better search term. Right. And, and, and depending on, depending on, for example, the kind of facts that you're looking at, like these things can be useless. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may be, it may wind up in the footer of an email or it may wind up in like a you know, contract that's anti-corruption language. Mm-hmm. And so you have to go through, you, you do all that, you polish your search terms, you apply it. Um, and so what I would say is often we'll do scoping interviews. Uh, so we will at least sort of get some preliminary information. Then we may come back to people uh, with more in-depth interviews. DOJ will, and SEC will expect rolling productions of documents. Uh, they may send you uh, a number of different kinds of requests. It could be a voluntary sort of for, like, you know, informal it's not informal, it's coming from the government, but uh, but a, a letter request with sort of requesting documents. It could be a subpoena from the SEC. It could be a grand jury subpoena from DOJ. It really depends on the circumstances and whether people trust you and what's going on and, and sort of the importance of the matter, et cetera. But mm-hmm. there'll likely be requests. You'll be responding to those requests. You'll probably have rolling productions. Uh, you'll probably give them downloads of the interviews that you're doing. Um, they will often want to speak directly uh, to people and schedule those interviews. Um, it used to be the case that many, many years ago, if, if the person was purely a witness, company employee, purely a witness, DOJ didn't have a problem with, uh, and SEC didn't have a problem with, company counsel, the external counsel for the company representing them in the interview. So they sort of sit there, they get interviewed. That's changed. And, and I'm not saying it happens all the time, but most of the time they want pool counsel. They want somebody from a different firm, mm-hmm. not company's external counsel, that will represent people that are even witnesses, uh, people that are not subjects or targets, because they don't want the, the, the specter of the sort of the external company lawyer sort of sitting there like watching this witness, they think it may intimidate the witness, get them to say something or refrain from saying something or being as transparent as they otherwise might be. So you may need to get yourself um, a pool counsel to represent multiple witnesses, as long as they don't think that there's going to be a conflict for people who are subjects or targets, they and they want to speak to them, they may need their own individual counsel. 
uh, you, you're going to have to be making decisions based on what you're seeing on the ground in real time about whether people are going to be put on garden leave, mm-hmm. uh, whether there's going to be remediation, discipline, termination, etc. I will just say for those people out there, if you're in the middle of a DOJ investigation and an SEC investigation and you're making decisions about whether to employ somebody or not, I would flag that for the government in advance of taking employment action. Um, uh, just so there are no surprises. Uh, DOJ and SEC generally don't weigh in on employment decisions, but they will want to know whether they have access to this witness uh, after they've been terminated, if they're being terminated. Uh, because um, I, I saw situations in which people would you know, fire everybody. Like they conduct their investigation, they'd remediate by firing a bunch of people mm-hmm. that they, th- they thought was entirely the right way to do it. And then they would come in and make a voluntary disclosure and they'd say, here are our findings. This is what we found. And we fired all these people. Well, just on that, sometimes, I guess, in terms of kind of, you know, depending on what country you are, right, you do have a time limit to fire people Mm -hmm. for cause. Um, So that may be, you know, pushing you where you got to, you know, terminate these people. Otherwise, your your time is up. Yeah, I will say that DOJ, I think, is sensitive to the fact that uh, outside of the United States, the employment laws are very, very, very different, including, by the way, not being able to fire people. Yeah, we, we ran one in Italy and it was it was clear corruption, bribery and fraud, multi-layered, and they were wringing their hands. Eventually, the best possible scenario was the two individuals resigned themselves and, and everybody took a big breath and went, oh, thank God, like, you know, we, we couldn't possibly fire them. Um well, and that's why, again, my, my point about transparency, which is as long as you say to the government, look, here, we're going to have to have a separation agreement. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to pay them a certain amount of money to go away. And whatever. But as long as you're transparent about it, I mm-hmm. think the government will say, OK, we get that it's not sort of hush money or whatever. We, we, we recognize that there are sort of employment and labor issues that you're, you're dealing with, mm-hmm. but you definitely want to like kind of vet that with them first and then mm-hmm. take your action second. Uh, so that there are no surprises. That's what I would say. Okay. You know, uh, and then eventually you you complete the investigation and DOJ decides, is there any there there? Well, I should say you have to decide if it's government facing, uh, that's what's happening. Uh, if, if you're just doing this internally and there are no document requests, you just have to anticipate what you think the government would, they come knocking, uh, will ask for, or if you go to see them, what they're going to request. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask in terms of, I mean, the dialogue with the DOJ, um, I mean, how much, I know when you go and you're obviously these investigations can morph into something else and where you thought it was isolated, it's, oh, well, actually it's something bigger. So, I mean, I, I'm assuming you don't want to just keep going back to them. Oh, and actually we found out this. Um, I mean, so kind of any advice in terms of, you know, I don't want to say what you're sharing with them, but I guess how often, or, you know, you just don't want to make it look like you have no control over this investigation or running to them all the time. So, so that's a great point. You know, it, it's a very lawyerly answer to say it depends, but it does. So for example, if it is a really high profile matter, right? You know, the allegations are out there, DOJ may be under, and SEC may feel under some pressure to be even more on top of certain cases because they're high profile. They have the attention of their bosses, there, you know, um, things are moving quickly. Uh, you may even set up r- a regular cadence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll speak every two weeks. And if something happens in the interim, we'll give you updates as well. Uh, so actually, you know, pretty frequent communication, especially early days. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of this is about trust. 
uh, trusting the company, trusting the internal uh, compliance and legal professionals at the company, trusting external counsel. You want to develop a rapport. And, and I don't mean this in any way to like say, oh, you got to, you know, like win the hearts and minds of DOJ and SEC. But, but if they don't trust you, that undermines everything you're trying to accomplish, which is to, you know, represent your client well and get the facts out there, including those that may be helpful to you. So having a lot of interaction, particularly early days, can be helpful. There may also be cases, however, where DOJ is not that interested uh, or SEC, and they've come and they've talked to you, and you, now you haven't heard from them. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's been months or a year. And it is interesting because there are then difficult decisions about, do you poke the bear? And it's interesting because you have to make some pretty important judgment calls on some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a client once that was represented by a, a different counsel, external counsel, that d- said, do not call DOJ. Do not reach out to them. Don't, don't like, who knows what may happen? We don't want to. And I was like, look, you know, you have to report to the board every quarter that this is an open matter. And you've been doing that for, at that point, I think it was like two years. Why do you pick up the phone? They're not that interested. Pick up the phone get them to confirm that they're not actually interested because I'm pretty confident they're not. Otherwise you would have been hearing from them. Mm. And then you can close this matter out. You're not reporting to the board anymore. You've done your job, you know? So sometimes I think you can go too far. I don't want to reach out because of, you know, bad things may happen, but there are also cases and, you know, uh, that people have where like, Hey, I'm not going to re-raise this, you know, uh, and we're okay with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll sort of fade in the memory of, of whoever, you know, maybe it's really just not that important a case. And then there, there are matters kind of, I would say, in the middle where you touch base every so often. It may be, you know, months go by between them, but you know that DOJ is still interested or SEC is still interested uh, or both. Uh, and you're, you know, you're having those communications. So it's really, it's kind of an art form. Yeah. Why wouldn't they send kind of a confirmation note of, look, we're not, we, we've, we finished our investigation. We're not uh, pursuing it. I mean, wouldn't that just be easier for everyone? So it used to be the case a long time ago that they just never sent those out. When I was there, I started doing that, uh, formal confirmations. And I think that they still do in certain cases. However, there are other ones where I will just say where you go and you talk to the government and they haven't actually opened a formal investigation. Maybe you've heard from a whistleblower, but it's not necessarily a matter that uh, they necessarily think it has predication and merits uh, opening it. If they're not going to open it, I actually don't think you're going to get a letter. Uh, saying that there's not. DOJ is not going to say, we've heard it all. We've decided not to open the matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, like, it's it's a different matter, I think. It's a different situation if they've opened something and they're, they're formally looking to close it. But the, I guess my point is uh, less about whether DOJ or SEC, for that matter, is willing to send some sort of a letter terminating the matter and more about whether or not you just hope that they continue to sort of forget about it. And, uh, and let more, you know, maybe the statute runs, maybe the, you know, uh, there, there are lots of uh, criminal cases, uh, FCPA cases, uh, you know, are not like a fine wine. They don't get better with time. Uh, and so, you know, there's some strategy sometimes into sort of not running to them, even if you would like to have that letter uh, and be able to put it in the file. Uh, so there's, there's some, you know, there's some discussions that you need to have and, and sort of figure that part out. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned two things that I just want to circle back to. You mentioned uh, credible and independent. One of the questions that we had was, uh, how far do you go on an internal investigation? Is that a good threshold? Like if we were just to say, listen, it, does it, does it pass the sniff test? Um, is this credible? Is this independent? Have you, have you got a true representation of the facts or facts that you believe will completely stand up? Like, is that the limit where we should be telling our clients to go in terms of investigations? 
you know, that that's a, I was going to say a million dollar question. It could be a, you know, $50 million question. Um, and so there's no one right answer to that, uh, which is how far is far enough. Um, and it is definitely something that, you know, requires a lot of thought and discussion with the client. Uh, it's something that you see reflected candidly in some of the DOJ statements now a couple of years ago, where they came out and they talked about not boiling the ocean, mm-hmm. uh, not looking under every rock. And that's because I think there were some external counsel, if I'm going to be self-critical about you know external uh, law firms, not myself in particular, but that may have, you know, a, a counter incentive to kind of keep going, yeah. keep looking under every rock, actually boil the ocean, boil it twice. Yeah. Like there's no, there's no downside to them uh, in doing that. And I think DOJ was trying to, you know, speak to, frankly, to in-house counsel to say there are limits and we're not as unreasonable as maybe your external counsel makes it sound we are. And, uh, and so you, know, you don't have to look everywhere. You don't have to do everything. Um, and so there's one extreme, which is you know, essentially spending lots and lots of money, time, resources, and disruption to the company in a manner that you don't need to do, right? And I think that's what DOJ was speaking to. There's the other side, which is you know, being uh, uh, too limited in what you're doing in the scope and, and, and the like, um, and ultimately undermining your overall effort because DOJ will look at it and say that was pretty anemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't interview enough people. You didn't look at enough documents. You didn't sort of you know, scrutinize things enough. You didn't have enough curiosity uh, to kind of look around corners and sort of peer into some stuff that uh, maybe you're afraid what you might find. Mm-hmm. Um, and that undermines you. And so the sweet spot, of course, is right in the middle. Um, and, and that's why I tell people sort of at the beginning that it's all about the scope. The scope will define the credibility. The scope will define the independence. The scope will also I- impact uh, the cost, uh, and it can be exponential. Uh, and so what you need to do is take a look at a matter and then say, okay, what's the core conduct? Who are the core people that are allegedly involved in this, whatever you know, conduct it may be? Mm-hmm. Uh, figure out, I should refer to them as custodians. Who are those custodians? Who are those people? And, and is there anything we need to look at outside of that? So for example... Because DOJ will ask, you know, well, you know, how are you so confident that this is the only issue that you have? Mm-hmm. And I think you need to be prepared to answer those questions by figuring out, well, let me tell you why I'm confident that this is the only, this is the limit of the conduct. Number one, maybe you can point to, and many companies have, a really good compliance program. And you say, mm-hmm. well, I'm confident that there's not more to this because of the following A, B, and C. These internal controls that we have that make this impossible. Training. Yeah. Yeah. Training is less. I'll be honest with you, at least when I was at at the government, I didn't care so much about policies, procedures, and training. Procedures, maybe I should put aside. Because we always say in a village of a thousand people, there's a jail. And that's because there's a certain number of bad people out there. Yeah. including in the organization, including DOJ and SEC. They're bad people. That's why they have an inspector general's office, right? That looks into you know, misconduct by FBI agents and, and federal prosecutors and, and the like. Every organization has bad people. So just telling people not to violate the law 
and then training them not to violate the law isn't going to solve your problem. Mm-hmm. That's why the internal controls are so key, which is segregation of duties, You know, making sure that uh, there's the oversight and review, including a robust internal audit, like all the kinds of things that it, like, it doesn't matter that you know you train somebody and told them not to do something; they're just going to do it anyway. That you prevent it through certain internal controls, and then you detect it uh, if it has happened through other procedures and mechanisms, uh, and then ultimately sort of remediate it. So, I guess my point is that as you sort of think about sort of process and, and what to do, and you're thinking about scope. One thing is to be able to rely on the compliance program and the internal controls. The other part is to say, well, I've looked elsewhere. I've looked at other third parties that, that are, you know, for that same business, or we looked at this person worked in two other locations during the last, you know, five years. We've looked there, but you've, you've done sort of, you've asked a couple of curious questions that go outside of just the pure ring fencing of what the issue is. You've looked kind of next level and you've made some other decisions or, or assessments about the compliance program and its strength and the internal controls and the like, so that you can make a credible case to say, I don't think there's anything else there. Because the last thing DOJ wants is to have a resolution with with a company and then have it turn out a year from now or two years from now, there's another problem. Can we dovetail very quickly in terms of uh, Katyuni's question in terms of legal and compliance functions um, being asked to do more with less? So using that to inform, it sounds like prevention, detection, and then resolution are the sort of the bywords for a core. Um, where would you be putting your your money in terms of standing something up if you've got limited resources? Is it due diligence everything? Is it training? Is it building a cool IT system that talks to all kinds of stuff? Like what's what would be your, your quick go-tos, I guess? Well, so partly it depends on how sophisticated the company already is. Yeah. So if you're talking about sort of next level, obviously automation and you know AI, I think, can be a, a sort of game changers in terms of insight and the like. But yeah. if you're talking about sort of, you know, you've got limited compliance dollars and you're trying to figure out where to spend them and you're not already there, I would say I would spend 80% of my money on sort of third-party uh, risk assessment components uh, and, and third-party third party, uh, um, management. Because 90% plus of the FCPA actions that have happened historically involve third parties. And they, I think, represent something like 98% of the penalties that have happened historically. I mean, they are the highest risk area by far. And so, uh, you know, the hobgoblin, I think, of every compliance program is the gift travel entertainment piece, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's it, it's just a huge time suck. There's just so much energy approving meals and travel, mm-hmm. and taking someone to a ball game or whatever it is. There's just a lot, there's a lot there. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's pretty rare that those activities by themselves, standing alone, have resulted in, in FCPA enforcement actions. Like, I just don't think the DOJ and SEC have the time to sort of figure out whether that steak dinner and that, you know, $300 bottle of wine that you got uh, for the meal, it, it, like, made you make a difference in your ultimate opinion on, you know, some multi-billion dollar project or, you know, $100 million project. Like, th- that's not the issue. The issue, I think, you know, from their perspective is, like, you know, cash going to people's pockets, right? Yeah. I'm not saying those issues aren't important. But so if you sort of focus on that for just a moment and you think to yourself, like, you know, where, like, training is good. It, like, you know, hopefully people know you shouldn't pay bribes to people, you know. And so, so it's good to have policies. It's good to have training. It's the third-party vetting. And so let, on, on that point, let me just say that so the anatomy of a bribe. The way that a bribe works in the international business context 
90 plus percent of the time is their internal controls that don't permit people to walk out of the, you know, the company with a million dollars in cash just doesn't happen that way. Right. There's some rare examples. I'm not going to name names, but there are historically companies that had, you know, places where you could go and pull out like a pilot's briefcase full of cash and walk out the door to go take care of business. I'm pretty confident that most places these days don't permit that to happen. And cash bribes almost never happen. It's almost never the case that that a company employee sort of shows up with a bag of cash to give to somebody. It just doesn't happen that way. So how does it happen? You hire a third party that looks legitimate on paper that's going to pass muster under the company's sort of you know, program. They're going to get hired. And then you're going to pay them a whole bunch of money for doing nothing. All right. They're not going to actually do any work. And then they're going to hand that money off or at least some part of it uh, to a decision maker within you know, either a state-owned entity or a government. That's how it works. Ninety plus percent of the time. And it's because internal controls for most like legitimate companies are significant enough that you can't get the money out otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so that's where people all go. I will say, however, just one sort of practice point, which is most people focus on and for good reason, the kind of the sales agents, the people that are sort of showing up for some kind of commission, a consultant, you know, sometimes lawyers can be involved. There's lots of different circumstances in which sort of that happens. That's all front end. Um, and, and I definitely think you should be mostly focused on front end. But front end is not the only vehicle by which bribes can be paid through third parties. You can also have, you know, whether it's sort of ongoing where you actually have local content requirements, supplier development partners, those kinds of people that are working kind of in parallel with you, sort of joint venture partners, consortium partners, those kinds of folks. So it's not just sort of the consultants and the sales agents, it's some of those folks. And then on the back end, uh, suppliers. So let's say, you know, uh, let's say you've won the bid uh, to build something or to do something, suddenly you need local contractors to to help uh, you know build the pipeline or to you know build a warehouse or you know, a hangar to, uh, that that you're required to build to put the plane in that you really care of that you're selling, right? So a sort of defense offset. You could then hire somebody's brother to do that, right? Uh, and and have that price be inflated, uh, or they get hired and they actually are sort of no-show employees. So so there's, there's, there's kinds of ways to do it on the back end as well. I think most of it is the sales consultant, the people that are sort of bringing deals to you, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I think that tends to be the, the highest risk, but you also have some others you need to think about. Well, and, and just on that, I think because the focus has been on sales agents, and so due diligence has been very robust there, then people look for loopholes. So then it was distributors um, and subcontractors. Um, so it's kind of wherever you're not doing due diligence on third parties, you should be looking at them and how, what that model that, is. That is exactly right. It's like squeezing a balloon. I mean, people will just find other ways mm. to do it. And you're exactly right that, you know, and we talked about tech a little bit earlier, you know, um, the sales channel, you know, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, some somebody in that sort of channel, a channel partner, whether that's a distributor or a reseller or whatever it may be, you know, all of those folks in the value chain, you know, potentially pose risk. And the question is, you know, Often for tech companies, they may not even have visibility into you know, one or two steps down that that channel, mm-hmm. uh, and so the, the question is like how to reasonably do that in a manner that you know makes sense, protects the company from liability, but you know uh, doesn't uh, doesn't go so far that it ends up you know being disruptive to business, legitimate business. So one of the things that I've seen happen is the the siloing of information. So you you conduct due diligence on this party that's helping you build the thing that you won the government contract, and the due diligence goes through and it identifies this company and 
it exists. It's real. It's got some people. They're not peps. There's no issues. There's no nothing in the public domain. Everybody tells you they're exactly the same as the other Iraqi company. Um, and then uh, it comes out years and years later that actually this is the uh, the pet company of the governor of the province, and he's got a seven million dollar fencing contract um, when he's actually not built a single fence. And and you know clearly that's the mechanism by which the bribe was was paid back. The due diligence side has done its job. Something has failed internally, and and this information has not been put together. When that happens, um, uh, when that happens, when it comes to the disclosure part of this, is this how is that viewed? Is that viewed as a a you know, I think this segments into to willful um, in terms of FCPA violations or a question around on, you know, is willfulness taken into account? Um, do, you know, how is that taken into account? Um, because clearly there was a process. It did work kind of. Um, it fell down at the last hurdle um, or was actively subverted. Um, so how is that viewed when it comes down to, to working this out? Look, no system is perfect, mm -hmm. uh, and I have no doubt that there, you know, there could be a circumstance in which, you know, a company hires a third party, uh, believing uh, that that third party is legitimate and has done their due diligence and has come back clean and, and all that, and that third party engages in misconduct, some sort of illegal bribery scheme or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. Under those circumstances, under those pure facts, um, I don't think that the company has liability for the conduct. I mean, that they, you know, they, they weren't willfully blind. I mean, that's really the standard, right? It's not about, did you know? It's about whether or not you turned a blind eye to something that you otherwise, if you'd asked the right questions, that you knew that you could ask mm -hmm. and you sort of chose not to, right? So this deliberate ignorance or willful blindness. Yeah. That's really the standard that you're sort of bucking up against when you're talking about the FCPA. So you want to be able to show, we asked the right questions. We, you know, we made the right inquiries. We weren't sort of, you know, intentionally, uh, shying away from asking the questions that we knew would would be problematic, and I think if that's true, I think you're you know you're in pretty good shape. The problem is is that that generally is not uh, the circumstance that people find themselves in. Generally, what you're sort of you're guarding against is that there's some local person that does know what is actually going on and is intentionally trying to trick you know, the sort of the broader compliance program that's run out of the United States or out of Europe or wherever it is. Yeah. Um, and they are lying on the forms and they are circumventing the internal controls. And so the question is, yeah. like, have you established it in such a manner that, you know, you ultimately look like the victim? Um, and yeah. you see that, for example, in the Morgan Stanley resolution in which Garth Peterson had really intentionally tricked Morgan Stanley into approving a third party through, you know, some, some, sleight of hand with various um, names, company names that look like it was the state-owned entity and set up uh, different offshore uh, um, uh, companies. And it turned out like that government official, yes, it was a government official and he was getting a bribe, but also happened to be a personal friend of Garth Peterson's, yeah. right? So, so in that circumstance, you know, everything that uh, Morgan Stanley had done in terms of training and oversight and compliance and vetting of third parties and all of this made them look like the victim as opposed to, you know, co-conspirator or beneficiary, even though they did benefit uh, ultimately from the illegal conduct. Garth Peterson was charged with circumventing internal controls and Morgan Stanley wasn't charged with anything as sort of a matter of discretion. And and that made sense under those circumstances. My point sort of coming back to your original question is, you know, I think often there is still criminal liability given that the, the standard, at least in the United States, is, you know, were you acting within the scope of your employment and did the uh, did the company benefit at least in part? 
That's mm-hmm. all that you need to prove in the United States is a pretty low level of uh, uh, low standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as long as the employee was acting within the scope of his or, emplo- uh, his or her um, uh, scope of responsibilities, and that's to sell products, et cetera, mm-hmm. then, then of course, you know, th- they, they qualify, even if they're circumventing the internal controls of the company to do so. And if they're, if the company's getting mm-hmm. some benefit out of it, even, even if it's a minor benefit, then then it's still enough, even if there's embezzlement going on. And so, so you can set up the program uh, and, uh, and you can do all the good work and establish that it wasn't any willful blindness on your part. But as long as you have one employee, one, that was engaged in that conduct, knew what was going on, um, then, then you're going you're gonna to have that liability. I actually thought where you're going to get into, but in terms of uh, siloing, was, was actually a slightly separate issue, which is some third party uh, gets turned down to be a third party, whether it's a sales agent or consultant or whatever in country B, mm. uh, and then Thank goes you. and goes and becomes, uh, you know, uh, and applies the same thing in country A and gets approved. And so I think it's incredibly important for companies to have that cross reference so that if somebody is turned mm. down, uh, they there's a flag on their file such that you know, at some central location so that they can't sort of uh, essentially forum shop, number one. And number two, and you've seen this in other uh, cases in for- recent enforcement actions in which, you know, company A gets rejected as a third party. Uh, company B gets approved as a third party. Mm. Company B basically, uh, you know, uh, hires company A uh, to handle the work. And what's really going on is company A is going to pay the bribe, right? Yeah. And so by that yeah. sort of sub-agent component to it, uh, they're able to circumvent the internal controls of the company. Or the same, um, I guess, similar would be it, they're rejected as a sales agent and then they go to a different department as a subcontractor and or or something else as a supplier and it's like well you know depending on why they were rejected obviously but you know it's like well the departments have to talk to each other to understand why they were rejected exactly um so that's another way and and really to your point earlier right which is people just get smart and they do it differently right uh you know people you know it it was sort of easy years ago because it was much more transparent people just get paid money and they literally do no work now People get paid money and there's some kind of work product that gets generated. You know, previously they didn't submit any invoices. Now there's an invoice. Now the invoices used to be, you know, kind of vague. Now they have greater specificity and they attach some stuff to it. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, people are, you know, evolving in terms of their sophistication and how to try to get around all the different controls and mechanisms that companies are putting in place to try to stop it. Or the activity reports. That's a very big thing, right? Is is collecting activity reports. Before, um, I mean, I heard, used to hear this often where they'd be like, well, you know, no, we don't, we didn't get really many reports, but I mean, they won the project. So obviously they should get paid because they did some work. And it's like, well, you have to prove that they did do work, <laughs> um, proper work. And usually it was in emails, right? That's now it's, I think, more standard to put them all in a consolidated place of what these agents or sales reps or consultants are doing. But yeah, that was just kind of a given. It's, well, they won the project, therefore they get paid. Why should we ask them for anything else? Yeah, that, that falls into the same bucket as a bunch of things like, uh, for example, well, we, we, you know, yes, we, we paid a bribe, but we didn't win the project. I think we're like, that's not a crime. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or, or you see emails. Tax deduction. Right, like emails that say, uh, please delete after reading. You're like, yeah. Yeah, emails never yeah. go away. Uh, anyway, thank you for your time um, and thanks for sharing your insight with us. This is this has been incredible. This is one of the best conversations about enforcement I've had. 
Um, so thank you. Well, I'm blushing. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, I, I appreciate uh, the chance to talk about the FCPA. I am sort of an FCPA nerd, so it is what it is. Mr. FCPA. Right. <laughs> now we know how you got that name. <laughs> Thank you both for joining us, and I, uh, I hope you enjoy listening.